continuing in our conversation on what happens uh, when the kingdom of God uh, uh, comes in contact with and overlays the kingdom of chaos, uh, the, the one in which we, we live. Um, and Jesus has been um, kind of building and building and building up to this point. We made the conversational point last uh, day that... Um, uh, last week, rather, that, that, that Jesus is, is, and Mark's gospel particularly, really kind of slows everything way down into slow motion and invites us to take a slow walk through these remaining three or four days. And uh, he does that very, very deliberately, very intentionally, because this is the point at which everything up to this point has been border skirmishes, has been, has been, has been kind of ground softening assault on the kingdom of darkness. Jesus has been doing some pretty amazing things, but, but as Mickey led us in here, you ain't seen nothing yet when it comes to God's overlaying of the kingdom of chaos. He has been since the beginning of time, and in fact since before the beginning of time, speaking order into chaos, taking the, 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 the situations as they are and breathing new life and new meaning and new significance and new value and new redemptive capacity into all of the chaotic environments and situations. And I, I don't know about you, but that's just really good, good news to me. Because uh, I, uh, I, I tend to proliferate chaos. I tend to create it as I go. And I'm grateful for a father who comes along and, and makes all things work together for good, uh, for his glory and his purpose. I had hoped uh, that, that Darren was going to take this text this morning, because it's a bear. And, uh, and, and, and it's not because I don't get it. How many of you know that the hardest stuff we have with the Bible is not the part we understand, uh, don't understand. It's the part that we do. This one we get, and it, and it, and it's, 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 it, it kind of grips us. And so I'm going to ask you to kind of fasten your seatbelts. It, 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 it is, if it, it'll get pretty intense here, uh, just because of what is happening. Uh, you may recall, um, a few months ago, before we moved into the to the uh, Advent season, I suggested that Jesus uh, was at, at this constant uh, kind of push-pull uh, in terms of geographic location and uh, people that is he in conflict with. And the image I used was he wants the pot to boil, but he wants the pot to boil at a specific time. So he has to keep taking the pot off of the, the burner, letting things kind of cool down a little bit, so that, so that he, can, he can kind of put it back on and build towards an outcome. Well, we are now building towards that outcome. And, and in the next five days, in terms of the narrative, in the next five days, he has to take the crowds that last week we talked about, but yesterday, Sunday, Palm Sunday, were, were crying, uh, Lord save us, Hosanna, Blessed is the, he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's make him king. He has to take that crowd and in five days convert that song to crucify him, crucify him. How do you, how do you, how do, you do that? How do you put the pot on so that it boils over at just the right time? And that's what we're experiencing here. So you'll get a sense of that. Last week... Uh, we left Jesus um, kind of, for me at least, I'm kind of dumbfounded until we kind of get to sense of what he's doing. Uh, if, if we go ahead and, and look at verse 11, uh, we're in, in Mark chapter uh, 11, 
And anybody need a, a Bible? We've got them on the sides here, and you're sure welcome. Well, let's. Uh, can I get a couple of guys? Thanks, Mickey, and, and uh, whomever else we got. Yeah, good. Thanks. Uh, we got one there. Just want to make sure you have one. Um, if if you need it. anybody else, there, back there. Thank you. A couple more. Okay, we are on page 708. 708. Uh, and I am in chapter 11, and I'll begin at verse 11, which is where we ended last week. You remember Jesus has come into town at the head of a parade. He goes left, and the rest of the parade moves on. Remember that Im- imagery? And so Jesus ends up uh, in the temple in verse 11 of, of chapter 11, uh, went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So that's where we were last week. Now we pick it up at verse 12. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Now, one of the things that we notice about Mark is that he is the the kind of the master of the subtle, the master of the innuendo. You'll notice as we as we move through these next three or four days, Uh, through the next four or five chapters, that he becomes more and more and more assertive. So in this case, Mark is signaling to us just every way that he possibly can that something is happening here of a significant nature. So here's the scenario. Jesus has um, started off Sunday night in uh, Jerusalem, looked around the temple, and then he's moved back out of town two miles to Bethany, uh, spent the night there, and now he's headed back into Jerusalem. And along the way, they, they, the pilgrims would typically leave just after sunrise. Along the way, he, he, he becomes hungry, which is just a, a curious curiosity to me. But why is this matter? And, and when you start to think about it, you get lost in the thinking about it. Like, Jesus, you left home five minutes ago. Didn't you, like, eat your Wheaties? What? Were you on a, like, uh, you had to catch the bus? You were just kind of run out of the house without it? What? You became hungry. You have a sense that obviously something else is going on here. But I'm curious about that because then Jesus notices a fig tree in the, in the middle distance and, and kind of moves off the path. And, and the, the leaves have identified the fig tree as a fig tree. And so he goes to see if there's any figs in, in, in the fig tree. Now, now, Jesus, we've already established he really doesn't know a whole lot about agriculture. He probably most of the time should have stuck to carpentry because most of the stories he tells about agriculture are just wrong. Which, can we just say, I really love Jesus. And the, he does that because he wants to tweak us into noticing what he's talking about. Okay? But this is a big parable. This is a particular kind of tree, three primary trees that were formed the agricultural basis of the economy in Palestine at the time, in Israel at the time, were, were olives. 
and, and dates and figs. So you've got, got that grapes as well. Dates and figs tend to tr- travel together on the same thing. Work, work with me, work with me. Fig trees produce fruit first, and then when the fruit has been harvested or fallen off, then it leafs out. Okay? So it's about this time, heading into this time of year, about late March, uh, that, that this begins to happen. So Jesus is seeing, and he identifies the fig tree as a fig tree because it has the leaves that mark it as such, which tells us that the season for fruit is, is past. But what is he doing? He is attempting to discover if, perchance, there is still some fruit left on this fig tree, even though it's leafed out. And when he gets there, he discovers there's no fruit, just, just leaves. And then he says, and please notice, we don't have any sense of him being angry. We don't have any sense of him just kind of stomping his foot on the ground or anything. He just says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say that which is going to become important in the next part of the story and which we'll unpack when we get there. So keep that in mind. From that scenario, what does he do? Look at it as we begin at verse 15. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those who were selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? So the scenario that Mark paints for us, Jesus has had this encounter, an unfortunate encounter, well, particularly for the fig tree, with the fig tree, and now he finds himself in Jerusalem, going to the temple. Remember, he was there last night. Apparently, when he was there last night, he wasn't taking pictures. He wasn't just looking around to kind of scope out the scene. He was, in fact, working on a strategy that by Friday will get him killed. You with me? This is very deliberate and very intentional at numerous levels. So he goes into the temple and begins to notice that the temple court is filled with tables of money changers and merchandise. Now, I need to kind of, this, the temple court in Jerusalem at this time is kind of like a, a little bit like a Russian doll in a way, if you're familiar with the, with the doll and the doll and the doll and the doll, remember those? Well, what we've got is the Holy of Holies right in the very center where only the high priest was permitted to go, or one of his designates, one time a year. By the way, that's going to be on Friday of this week. We're heading into that event. Okay? So we're, we're, we're there. Then, then we have the, the holy place, which the priests do to do sacrifice and, and offer various types of worship. That's their place. Then on the outside of that is the court of the men. Then on the outside of that is the court of the women. Then on the outside of that is the court of the Gentiles. The Gentiles had a court set aside for them so that those who were traveling from all over the world, 
of which there were many. We're told 50 days from now that there are people from, from almost 20 different nations in Jerusalem for this 50-day period of time. Just imagine that. First century, ancient Near East, people had traveled uh, thousands of miles in some cases to be here for this combined holy season of Passover and Pentecost. So they're there, right? And, and, and that court, that Gentile court, was the place, was as close as they could get to the holy place. It was the place where God intended these Gentile uh, men and women to come and encounter the living God in a way that perhaps might transform them and lead them to become God-fearers to take circumcision, to take baptism, and to move more fully into Judaism, into the faith of Israel. That's who that court was for. And when Jesus comes there, what does he discover? He discovers that that court, the place that God had set aside for the Gentiles to encounter the living God in a soul-shaping, soul-transformative way, had been completely taken over by the Orange County swap meet. Tables, animals, money changers, commerce going on like midnight at Walmart. Things were trading place. And Jesus becomes livid. He is angry. It lights him up. Because Israel is supposed to be the nation that is the light of the world. And what are they doing with the light? They are masking it under a bushel of commerce. You, you with me? I want you to notice what's happening here. Notice the connection between these two stories. He goes to the fig tree and looks for fruit and finds nothing but leaves because, Mark says, the season for fruit bearing was past. And he comes to Jerusalem looking for fruit. And what does he find in the temple? Leaves of dead religion. The, the, the thing that grows out after the fruit has been... all of There's no fruit. There's no fruit. There's just leaves. Because the season of fruit bearing for this fig tree has passed. You see what Mark is doing there? He's inviting us to, to, to start to turn the corner because one of the other things that Jesus has got to do in these four or five days is prepare this group of, of, of followers and his followers and his believers to take over being the light of the world. He has to train them, in the final, uh, uh, train them for the final exam, if you will. He has to invite them into a different kind of reality than they have even been working it, even than, they, than they're aware of. He has, to, he has to train them for this. So, 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 so Jesus comes looking for fruit in this temple where he ought to find it, and there discovers nothing but leaves, nothing but the structures of religion, nothing but the, the ways, the, the commerce, the, the, the ways of doing business. And he cleans house, turns over the money tables, Sets the doves free, cows running around, goats, sheep bang their way out of the temple court. It's just, it's just, it's just complete chaos. And notice what Mark says. If you can follow this, look at it. This is, I love this part, where he says, um, verse seventeen, as he taught them. What is he doing? He is 
cleaning house. And Mark says, as he taught them, he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. How is Jesus teaching them this? By creating chaos, if you will, by, by, by turning over the money tables, by, by, by setting the animals free. He is teaching them that what they had, 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 had created looks to the Father like this. It's chaotic and it's confusing. It's a den of robbers, not a house of prayer. And you all, you leafful, fruitless people have done this. He's starting to turn the corner, do you see? That will create the tension that leads from Hosanna to crucify him. He invites them. Because I, 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 I don't know, it might be my imagination. I just love this picture, don't you? I just love the, the doves in the cages set free. I love the little lambs destined for sacrifice, wandering around. You know, I, 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 I particularly like the chaos that happens when you turn over the tables full of money. Imagine what would happen. Everybody would gather it together and return it to the person to, from whom it came, right? No, people are, people are, people, it's like a pinata has exploded and dollars are falling out. You, you, you with me? It is a traffic jam on the temple freeway. You, you with me? So people are, uh, all of this is going on, and Jesus is saying, teaching, as he's, as he's doing all this. I just love this. Follow me, guys. Jesus, chaos. He's wading into the chaos, saying, you have made my father's house, which was supposed to be a house of prayer, into a den of thieves. Anybody taking notes this morning? Yeah, he's just, just doing this, doing this crazy, 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 crazy thing. And then, verse, oops. My page turned. Um, verse 19, uh, he went out of the city. Now, notice, however, what happens in verse 18. How many know that there are professional harumphers who are seeing this happen and are just going, oh, 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 just, oh, just, oh, look, Now, why are they doing that? Well, because the money changers, remember, we have people from all over the world, but you can only pay the temple tax in a temple coin. So you need to exchange whatever currency you brought in into the currency of the temple. Anybody gone through an airport and done a currency exchange? Anybody notice that if you do it at the airport, it's a whole lot more expensive than you do it at a bank downtown? Can you imagine what it would be like to be held hostage by the religion police? The exchange rate enabled them to take a cut for their services, but also to provide a cut to those who had leased them the space, namely the chief priests and scribes. So these guys saw their pension fund rolling away with the quarters on the ground. And they are harumphing. Please notice, their concern is not for the house of God. Their concern is not for the preservation of the holiness of the house of Gentiles, for the court of the Gentiles. Their concern is not for the true and appropriate worship of God. 
Notice what he says. Verse 18. The teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him because they were afraid of him. Because the crowds were amazed at his teaching. They saw the tide of popular opinion shifting towards Jesus. And they're threatened in their power structures. That's leaves without fruit. Jesus had come expecting fruit and found nothing but leaves. Okay? So, day two, he creates chaos in the temple court, and then he goes back to Bethany. Next morning, verse 19, or 20. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered. <laughs> I just love that. It's like... Weren't we here yesterday? Does anybody remember? It's like 24 hours a day. That's like a long time. But Peter remembered. And he said, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And I love the look in Jesus' eye right now. It's like, well, duh. Of course. Now, now, the fig tree volunteered. Did you notice this? Jesus didn't curse the fig tree. He just said, may no one eat fruit of you anymore. And what did the fig tree do? It dried up from the roots, not from the top down, but from the bottom up. And then notice, Jesus says, look guys, if you have faith in God, I say to you, truly, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And then, when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. Anybody want to just... Sign a petition to get that last verse just taken off the text. We'll vote it right off the island, then we don't have to worry about that. Okay? So we'll get to that in, in a minute. But I, this, is a, this, is a, this is a troublesome passage because we don't quite know how to read, read this and make sense of it unless we've been following Jesus around and paying very close attention for the last three years. What has he been talking about all the time? He's talking about the invasion of the kingdom of God. He is talking about the fact that the spiritual realm overlays and is more powerful than the material realm. Right? He's saying, in other words, if you stand, if you have faith in God, that's another way of saying, if you stand in the reality of the kingdom come, that's another way of saying, if you stand in the spiritual reality over and against and above the material reality, that's if you saying, if you see things that nobody else sees, if you understand things that nobody else understands, if you get what this world is really about, if you stand in that reality, then you will also understand that spiritual trumps material every time. Supernatural trumps natural every time. 
You can in fact say, if you get this, if you stand in the reality of the kingdom come, if you stand in the spiritual significance of that, you can say to this mountain, he points to the Mount of Olives that they were just passing by, he's not speaking metaphorically, he's speaking geographically, this mountain with a GPS coordinate, you can say to this mountain, be cast into the sea and it will obey you. That's the nature of the reality I'm inviting you to stand in. The reality of the kingdom come. The reality of the spiritual over the material. The reality of the supernatural over the natural. If you stand in that reality, you can rearrange the geography, the topography of the planet. That's how powerful, how significant, how present, how immediate the kingdom of God actually is when it comes to the material realm in which we live and move and have our existence. Because you don't have your existence in the material realm first. You have it in the kingdom first. That's the point we were trying to make last week. That's what the inside-out kingdom looks like. Now, here's the problem. He says, if he does not doubt in his heart but believes what they say will happen, it will be done for them. And here's what we do with this. We read this as saying, if you decide what you want in the material realm and wish really hard and talk yourself into believing an outcome, which we then call, by the way, faith, then you've twisted God's arm and he can't help but give you what you ask for. Doesn't that sound like we're not quite at the point? What happens when you stand in the reality of the kingdom of God come? What happens when you stand in the reality of the supremacy of the spiritual over the material? What happens if you believe in your heart, by the way, which is another way of saying have faith, which is another way of saying stand in the reality? What happens? Your ways and, and wants and desires of asking are shaped by that reality. Do you see? When you stand in that reality, the reality of the kingdom come, the kingdom begins to shape what you ask for in the material realm. You begin to see things on the planet differently than anybody else does. Remember what we talked about the first Sunday in, in January. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Don't be praying about your co-worker. Pray for them. They're not the problem. Things in the spiritual realm are the problem. You see that because you stand in the reality of the kingdom come. You have faith in God. You believe in your heart, and that's where you live. As a result, you see things nobody else sees. Now, here's the problem. What do we do then with people who are sick and not healed? What do we do then with people whose financial resources are not met? What do we do with people with chronic illness, whether physical or emotional or mental? What do we do with that? Doesn't this verse say that because we want that to happen and God can make it happen, when we don't see that happen, it must mean that we're not really standing in the reality? That we really don't have enough faith? Because if we did, then so-and-so would be healed, then so-and-so would be delivered, then their resources would be met. And, and here's the point. Folks, that is not what Jesus is saying. What he is saying is, when you stand in that spiritual reality, you have capacity to recognize, even in the brokenness that occurs in the natural world, in the material world, you recognize that God is at work at something 
that is not going to be accomplished if that healing takes place or that deliverance takes place or that financial need is met or that job need is met because you see things differently than everybody else sees them. You stand knowing what God is doing. It takes more faith to be sick by faith than it does to be healed by faith. That's hard. That's really hard. But you, 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 does that make sense? Because when your prayers are not answered, when your heart's desires, you understand them, are not granted, and you still continue to stand in the reality of the kingdom come, that takes more faith than getting what you want. You're going to remain faithful even if it doesn't work. Because you want fruit, you're tired of leaves. Do you see? And the world that we live in doesn't need more leaves doesn't need more structure, doesn't need more ritual. It needs more fruit. So we are being trained. We are being invited into an entirely different reality. We are being trained to take the reality of the kingdom that we believe and stand in in our hearts and let it infect and affect our marriages and our finances and our physical and emotional and mental health. Everything gets transformed and brought right side out as we stand in the reality of the kingdom. That makes sense? And then he says, oh, by the way, when you stand praying, by the way, praying is another way of saying standing in the spiritual reality. Jesus is not using the language of praying to talk about laundry listing God. He's not talking about praying to refer to what I usually do, which is worry in God's presence and call that prayer. Can I get a witness? Right? <laughs> That's not what he's talking about. He's talking, he's talking about prayer as the fundamental language of relationship. If you have a relationship with God, if you are in conversation with God, if you stand in a reality in which that is possible, and we do, then you got to understand that if you are aware, he says, that you are holding anything against anyone because of what they've done for you, what do you got to do? You got to forgive them. You got to forgive them. Now, Jesus is trying to teach us something here. Because remember, again, he's got five days, four days now, to get these guys ready for the handoff. And what he's teaching them is forgiveness has nothing to do with them. Forgiveness has nothing to do with the person who hurt you, no matter how catastrophically they have damaged you. It has nothing, forgiveness has nothing to do with them. It has everything to do with you being free from the burden of revenge, free from the dead weight of betrayal, free to fly and stand in that reality. But here's the deal. The more that we don't forgive, and Jesus, please notice here, he's not saying these aren't legitimate concerns we have. He's not saying it doesn't matter. He's not saying... You know, pretend it didn't happen. You can't forgive if you can pretend it didn't happen. 
Forgiveness requires a full embrace of the betrayal, the pain. You with me? But he's saying, to the degree that you don't forgive, every, everything that you don't forgive is another cord tying you to a material reality and disabling your standing in the spiritual reality. You're built to sail. Cut the cords. How do you do that? Give them to Jesus and let him decide what to do with them. You can give him advice if you want. He probably won't take notes when you talk. But the truth is, revenge is not your business anyway. Judgment is not your business. What if you're releasing them so that you can get on with your own life is about them being released so that they can get on with new life. Because as long as I don't forgive you, I'm giving you charge over my emotional well-being. As soon as I forgive you, I say, you mind your own business and I'll mind mine. You with me? So Jesus is very blunt here. He just says, look, if you, if, and, and, then he, and then he just kind of nails it when he says, the reason we do this is so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. It's not a condition. What he's trying to get at here is that we have done the calculus of forgiveness in our heads, haven't we? We've taken all of the things that have been done to us and we've put them in the weight, the scales, and we're really convinced that the things that have been done to us, the betrayals, the lies, the gossip, the scam, whatever it is, is greater than the sins that we have committed against the Father. And so we believe that we're justified. And, and Jesus is just saying, guys, you've missed the point. You've missed the point. If you will offload the things that people have done to you, you can receive in full measure the forgiveness that has already been offered to you. Because the degree to which you put these same things in the same balance is the degree to which you have not got the first clue about the Father's forgiveness of you. So let them go so that you can go. Release them to their destiny, whatever it might be. And it could be judgment. It could, be, it could, be, it could however, be redemption. None of your business. Because I think, frankly, some of the people I don't want to forgive, I don't want to forgive because Jesus is going to forgive them. How many of you have a short list of people that don't deserve to go to heaven? So if I... For, oh, come on, come on. Well, one honest guy in the whole place, right? But we have, a, we have a short list, don't we? Of people that we just do not want God to forgive. So we're afraid, and it's, and it's usually about people who have harmed us. So we're afraid if we trust them to Jesus, He's going to forgive them. Right? And then their room in the mansion is going to be right next to ours with adjoining doors. I, it's... Jesus, just he's inviting us, though, isn't he, to get a grip on the new reality that we're invited to stand in, which is the only hope of the world. The world does not need more leaves. 
It needs more fruit. You know where I'm going with this, don't you? I'm going to invite you into two different responses this morning. And the table's available, the cross is available. But what I'm going to invite you to do in just a moment, Mickey and, and the team are coming back up, and, and we want to just kind of cover this moment with, 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 with uh, worship. But what I'm going to ask you to do, if, if you are recognizing your need to stand more fully in the reality of the spiritual realm, whether your prayers get answered or not, and the Spirit, recognizing that the Spirit is at work in deep and profound ways through the things in the material world that don't adjust themselves the way you want them to. You need some help with that reality. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand. But then secondarily, if you are here today and you realize the fact that I have not forgiven is what's disabling me from standing fully in that reality. And today I want to set it aside. I want to cut the cord. I want to move into a new way of being with God and walking in his forgiveness. I'm going to ask you to stand. And as people around you are standing, we usually ask people to come forward. In the first service this morning, that wouldn't have worked because there were enough, enough of us here that needed to stand. So I'm going to assume it's the same but as people are standing around you, can I just deputize any of you who are not standing to be our prayer team this morning and to go and stand with them and pray with them for courage to stand in the reality of the kingdom come so much so that they're able to release people who have hurt them to the Father's business. You know, either of those things. And then, of course, you might just want somebody to pray with you and you feel free to stand too and we'll be sensitive to, to where you're at. Okay? Um, if, if you're here today and we can pray with you, just stand right where you are, if you don't mind. And as people stand around you, I'm going to invite you to gather uh, and stand with them.